about one overarching thing about ministry, um, and then what I want to do is walk through uh, six struggles that men have, uh, I think different struggles to persevering in ministry itself. And I'll cite some statistics for you, it's pretty shocking, uh, but want to go through that. I think it's a good thing for young men to think through, uh, for some of you are older than me. I mean, uh, those of us that are young in the pastor to think through uh, as we're headed into ministry. I want to start, uh, before we kind of dive into that, it's just going to be one overarching thought uh, about ministry. I don't know about you, but when I went into ministry, uh, uh, wrestling with the scriptures and thinking through ministry and what I wanted my ministry to be marked by, uh, I chose kind of a ministry life verse and often meditate on it. And often return back to it, uh, especially in dry seasons and times that I'm struggling in ministry. And for me, it's Colossians 1, 28, 29. Uh, I see that as Paul's life ministry verse in many ways. Uh, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom, in order that we might present everyone a mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. As I've meditated on that over the years and thought about the implications of those couple of verses, I think about ministry and I think ministry is really quite simple. It's not rocket science. It's not that hard. I think about it like I think about baseball. I'm a Cubs fan. So it's long-suffering, and you have to really love baseball to be a Cubs fan. Uh, to watch all those Cubs games. But baseball is incredibly simple. But we can make it incredibly complex. Uh, with intentional walks and balks and runner interference and double switches and all these things. It can be incredibly complex. But in reality, all it is is hitting and catching and throwing and running. That's it. That's all it is. And all that can get lost as you start thinking about intentional walks and walks and runner interference and all these things. Ministry is very similar. We can get caught up in all kinds of things about ministry. But it's really incredibly simple. I think it boils down to three things. First is that you love Christ's Word. You love His Word. You feed upon it. You nurture it. You grow in it. You live in it. I can remember being in seminary, and I remember a professor, uh, seminary I went to, we had to take a bunch of English Bible classes. So we had to take eight different English Bible classes, and then we had the Greek Bible classes on top of that, Hebrew Bible classes. But eight English Bible classes. And I remember one of those English Bible professors saying one day in front of our class, he said, make sure that above all else that you are masters of the English Bible. I remember internally just kind of cringing and rolling my eyes and thinking, I'm learning Greek. I'm learning Hebrew. I'm learning theology. I'm learning how to counsel. And this guy says, be a master of your English Bible. But now, 12 years into ministry, he's exactly right. I have nothing to give my people if I don't know the Scriptures. I need to be able to communicate that to them. I need to live on it. I need to breathe it. It's to be part of who I am. Um, I remember when I was looking for a uh, first pastor, there was a church in, in Louisiana. You guys in the PCA will know there was a, a lot of uh, struggles there. Um, 
And this church was calling me uh, as a pastor. Welcome, brother. And Federal Vision was going on. It just kind of beginning rumblings of it in the PCA. And this church I had gone and preached at a couple of times. And they decided to call me as their pastor. Um, it was kind of a surprise to me. And uh, their pastor had been a man that had uh, promoted Federal Vision theology. And he had left the church to go study under N.T. Wright in, in England. And, and I remember wrestling with whether to take the call. And I uh, spoke to uh, a couple of different uh, men that you would know in PCA that are older and wiser. And I remember one of them saying to me, Jason, forget about it. You don't need to be embroiled in controversies your first few years in the ministry. You just need to spend your time getting to know the scriptures. That's right. Get to know Christ's word. Love his word. The second is, is love his people. Uh, don't keep them at arm's length. Uh, draw near to them. Allow them to draw near to you. Uh, Get to know them, get to know their struggles, get to know what they love, get to know their joys. And that includes the children in their congregations, getting to know their names, bending down on a knee and talking to them. Uh, love his people, right? This is when uh, Peter is restored there uh, by the Lord Jesus after his denial. You know? What does he say over and over to him, right? Love my sheep, feed my sheep. Right? Love his people. The third is this. And all important. Love his word, love his people, and love Christ. All ministry is, is tying these three things together and bringing them to bear on everything. And loving Christ, we talk about it all the time as pastors. We teach our people it. We pray for them about it. We fill our sermons with it. But the truth is, is that it is to fill up. And it's to drive us. And the more and more I, I go through the ministry, the more and more I think, ah, that's, that's all I want. I want to love Christ more. Because everything else flows from that. Probably the most consistent prayer I pray for myself is, Lord, just help me to delight in you more. I just want to delight in you more. What does the psalmist say? It says, one thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Just wants to delight in God. I was reading uh, Ferguson's uh, new book, wonderful on the uh, uh, marrow controversy. And uh, thank you, brother. And uh, he has an interesting line that takes from Boston in there. Said, Thomas Boston said that men that really know Christ and have been dwelling with Christ, that there, there's a certain tincture about their preaching. And Ferguson said, you know, I found this to be true. There's just a certain tincture. You can't put your thumb on it. You can't quite nail it down. But there's, there's just a tincture about it. Think of, think of it like uh, you see those stained glass windows. Maybe some of your churches have them in stained glass windows. You look at them from the outside, and they are they're dull. They're formless. They, they're not real inspiring. But when you're, you go inside the church and you look at those stained glass windows from the inside of the church and they're beautiful and they're radiant and all of these things come together. So I think it is for Christian ministry and for the Christian pastor 
when you are in Christ and you're delighting in Him and you're seeing all of that beauty, just enlivens you. It informs everything that you do. It informs your preaching, it informs your counseling, it informs your teaching, it forms the way that you pray for your people. So as you pray for yourself, you keep praying, Lord, help me just to delight in you more and more. And it's those three loves, if there's anything else I want to encourage you about today, it's just those three loves. When, when we're pastoring, it's just bringing those three loves to bear. So when I step into the pulpit, this is informing my ministry. Love for Christ's word, love for his people, and love for him. And I'm just bringing those three things together when I'm preaching. When I'm sitting down to counsel somebody, that's what I'm doing. I'm bringing love for Christ, love for his word, and love for his people together. It's often my counsel of God's people when I'm counseling them. I was just with a man this past week that uh, struggling uh, incredibly with uh, some different sins and gave him the assignment and said, you know what, I just want you to go this week and I want you to keep a journal for me and go through, what are you reading through? And he said, well, right now I'm reading through Philippians. I said, what I want you to do is go through Philippians, and as you're reading through, I just want you to journal every day something that you find in the text that delights you about Christ. I don't want you telling me about Christ. I don't want you telling me about different applications. I want you telling me something that really fills you with delight in the moment as you're reading. And meditate upon it. What's that doing? Just connecting love of Christ, love of the scriptures, and love, right, for Him. That's all it is. Bringing those three things together. That's all that ministry is. Very simple. We can make it complex. I encourage you not to. Keep it simple. Alright, this is what I want to do. Is spend most of our time. And I want to be practical. And I want us to move. So I want to give you guys time to interact with each other. And uh, if you're like me, you have plenty of questions about ministry. And hopefully we can help each other out here uh, this afternoon. So, perseverance in the ministry. Uh, I want to talk about this because uh, the, the statistics are not great for you men. Francis Schaeffer Institute of Church Leadership Development reports that 35 to 40% of ministers last less than five years in, in ministry. Less than five years. Many statistics show that 60 to 80% of those who enter the ministry will no longer be laboring in ministry in 10 years. 60 to 80%. Now, some of that, no doubt, is due to men shouldn't have ever gone into the ministry in the first place. Nobody had the courage to tell them, no, you don't have the gifts. Uh, but the case is, as I find at least as a Presbyterian, as I watch different men in Presbyterian be dismissed or their calls be terminated and they no longer come back into the ministry, that that's often not the case. And so I'm going to give you six different things to be on guard against, six barriers, and then two encouragements for each of them. This is not scientific. This is Jason Holopolisology, I guess. And these are the six that I think about and that I've noticed in uh, talking with men that have left the ministry. Uh, the first is tiredness. This is probably the number one reason that men give for leaving the pastor is they're just tired. Uh, they're burnt out. Uh, I was actually reading on the way down here, uh, on the flight down here uh, on Monday, wonderful little book, uh, I'm a blank on the name. Zeal without burnout. So it's zeal without burnout. Um, it's just a good little book. I encourage you to read that. 
where he's talking about this very thing, just tiredness in the ministry. The job can be spiritually, it can be emotionally, it can be intellectually, physically tired. Uh, think about preaching, and if you are like me, uh, you get done out of the pulpit and you're exhausted. It's not uncommon for a pastor. It feels like you're ripping open your chest for all the world to see. And then you've got to go out and shake everybody's hands. Uh, ministry is tiring. Uh, a lot of men uh, tend to burn the candle at both ends. And they're not caring for their body or their soul. And they tend to be exhausted in a few years because of it. So two encouragements. The first is use your time well. Um, if you don't have a schedule for your week, you need to figure out a schedule for your week. Uh, I tell young men that are entering the pastorate, I tell them, block it off into three periods of time. you got your morning, your afternoon, your evening. And you need to schedule the things that are most important first. And the things that are most important are where is your family fitting in and where are you getting rest. Because those two things will always be bumped out. Because there is always the urgency of the moment. So you pencil in those two things. Where you're spending time with your family, and where you're resting. Say, I gotta, I gotta schedule my family. Yeah, because it's incredibly important. When that deacon calls, or that elder calls, or that person needs a emergency visit that night, you say, I, I can't do it tonight. I already have something that's scheduled. It's incredibly important. There are some things that you gotta rush off to, but there are a lot of things that you should not be rushing off to. So you make a schedule. You look at what is then the thing that is most important in your ministry, and you find your best hours for it. So some of you guys are morning men. I tend to be a morning guy. I like to get up at 5.30 and get to work by 7.30, and those are my best hours. 7.30 to 11 o'clock in the morning, those are my ideal hours. So what do I use those hours for? The thing that's the most demanding and the thing that should occupy my time, and that's sermon preparation or whatever I'm going to be teaching or meditating upon that week. Um, that's what I'm going to use those hours for. Then the afternoon, the things that are less demanding for me, sitting down and discipling somebody or counseling somebody or doing administration, then the afternoon is set for those times. But you schedule uh, when you are most alert mentally, when you are most engaged spiritually, when you are most just together physically, you schedule your best thing for those moments and don't let anything encroach upon it. The third is be flexible. Uh, you know, we should have pretty packed schedules as pastors, but it shouldn't be so packed that you don't have flexibility. You should be able to fit in an emergency appointment, an emergency pastoral visit um, in your day. Uh, you should be able to run off somewhere if you need to where there's flexibility to move things around. And you know a good gauge on this is you ask your wife or you ask your fellow staff members at church or you ask your parishioners, ask them if they, when they come by your study at church and knock on the door, do they feel like they're interrupting something that's more important? Do they feel like that when they knock on your door? that's a sure sign. So be flexible and use that flexibility. Uh, we as pastors, we have long days. We have no... Two-day weekends? We surely don't have three-day weekends. Uh, so you need to use that flexibility for your family. So uh, my son uh, had a soccer game at 1 o'clock last Tuesday. Well, look, I got flexibility. Right? As a pastor, I can go to that. Uh, you should use it. Um, 
work a lot of evenings and are busy all weekend. So use the flexibility to, to benefit yourself and your family. Number two, get rest. Uh, maintain a Sabbath each week. Keep it, safeguard it, enjoy it. Always think about Mark 6 when Jesus is sent out. The apostles, they sent them out to preach and to cast out demons, to heal sick people, and they're returning and they're so excited about everything that they've done. And what does Jesus say to them? Let's go across the other side so they may rest. That's his response. We need rest. You were built to need rest. So take every vacation day that you have. Uh, that's not being selfish. Amen. Your elders know you. Take every one. I was standing here, uh, it was probably. 10 years ago now, it's a bright sunny day here at Twin Lakes, and there was a group of pastors, probably eight guys, standing around, and it was a, it was a contest, is what it was, is that they were going around saying how little they've used their vacation days, right? One guy said, I, I have so many vacation days at the end of the year that I haven't used, and it's been like that for five years. Another guy said, I, my elders keep giving me more days, and I, I just can't find the time to take off was some kind of super spirituality. It's not super spiritual, it's super stupid. That's what it is. You need rest. Thank you. We're strongest in God when we reckon the weakness in ourselves. Take breaks from email. Schedule regular private prayer retreats for yourself. At URC, a church I labor at, we require the staff, so all the staff that are under me, I require them, they have to give me one day a quarter that they're just going off to pray. And they got to tell me when that day is. Uh, first pastor I labored under, I remember as soon as I uh, came on staff, he said to me, Jason, he said, you are going to have what he called kick the tire days. He said, you need kick the tire days. He said, you come in and all you have to say to me is, pastor, I need to kick the tire day. Meaning, you're so frustrated you burn out, you're tired, you just want to go home and kick the tire. And I think that's wise. And I think you should get people to free from do that that are under you in ministry as well. Don't feel like you have to be at every event and minister to every person. You aren't omnipresent and you're not omniscient, so don't act like that. You can't do it. Second reason uh, that pastors tend to not persevere in the ministry is discouragement. Um, there are different reasons for this. Uh, one is that pastoring is an odd endeavor. Uh, carpenter comes to the end of his day. He knows what he's accomplished. So does the banker. So does the librarian. So does the teacher. We as pastors are never quite sure what we've accomplished in our day. Um, and, and it can be discouraged, especially when your wife, you get home and she says, what did you do with your day? And you say, well, I read and I prayed. Remember that? Really, that's what you did with your day. Um, it can be incredibly strange. And you don't know if what you prayed had any benefit. You don't know if the people you met with had any benefit. You don't even know if the sermon you just preached had any benefit. And we won't know until glory. And I think a lot of times that can be discouraging. Uh, we have this expectation that we will see fruit. Uh, but even that was not true for Paul. As he says in 1 Corinthians 3 there that they should have already had solid food, but they still needed milk. Uh, another discouragement is that just people under our, our care continue to disappoint us. Uh, you know, there was a man that I, I labored with. He was a drug addict and an alcoholic, and uh, we would meet uh, every other week. And I did that with him for five years. And 
we would go through seasons where I thought he had come to faith in Christ. He was excited. It was a, there was a six-month period where he had invited all of his family for Bible studies. And so it was me and literally 20 people in his family that were all drug addicts. They used to get together and do drugs together as a family. This was their family reunions. And we, we sat around, the 21 of us, and we're doing Bible studies together. And, you know, about every two months I get a phone call, and either he'd be in the hospital, or his wife would be calling to say he didn't come home last night, or I got the call that he was in prison a couple of times. Yeah. Now this is another five years later, and he doesn't know Christ on the street, using drugs. Um, people can discourage. You begin to doubt your own effectiveness, you begin to doubt your gifts, and even your calling. Two encouragements. Remember that your work is spiritual work. Now think about uh, our, our work is invisible in nature, and that can be discouraging, but it's also, I think, the most encouraging thing about it can be discouraging because I don't necessarily know what immediately has happened. But it's also one of the most encouraging that I never know what's happening. I can preach what I think is one of the worst sermons ever, and the Lord uses it to convert somebody. I can pray what seems like an ineffectual prayer for months and even years, and the Lord uses that to draw somebody to saving faith for others. You never know. I've found this especially the case as I've moved pastorates, and the people that continue to contact me from the free previous pastorate uh, are people that have thought, I barely remember you. But you had some impact upon their life by God's grace, and you didn't even know what was happening. This is one of the most encouraging things about our work, is that it's spiritual. About the parable of the growing seed in Mark 4, that farmer goes out and he scatters the seed and then he retires to sleep. His labor is the spreading of the seed. And that's his task. If he's looking for immediate gratification for a day's hard work, he'll find none. Why? Because he must lay down and he must rest. And God must do the work. If he had gone to bed after he scattered the seed that night and had been disappointed, he would have been a fool. Because that's not how it works. That's not how farming works. You actually have to rest, and then God does the work overnight. And as farming doesn't work that way, so it doesn't work in ministry that way. We're fools if we're constantly looking for that immediate response. Tim Keller said it this way. He said, you and I, we are responsible for faithfulness and effectiveness. But God is responsible for success. So I'm responsible for faithfulness using the means that he has given me to do for the benefit of his people. I'm also responsible for effectiveness. If we get up in the pulpit and we have not prepared our sermon and we're just going to go willy-nilly, but we haven't thought through as we just heard illustrations or thought for applications, then it's not going to be effective. But we're not responsible for success. God, it's incredibly freeing in the pastor. Find the Lord often gives us little glimmers of His working through us and by us, and and the truth is we often miss those little glimmers because we're looking for something that's big and shiny. But He gives us little glimmers. You know what? He's working in that person. So the seed is 
It's small, but it, it's taken root. Who's uh, Alistair Begg says, uh, we, we overestimate what we can do in one year of ministry. And we underestimate what we can do in five years of ministry. You take a long view. When you're ministering to people, have a long view. Second, find people who encourage you, who encourage your soul. Read good bi- biographies and help them find uh, uh, that that's what encourages my soul and fights discouragement. Edwards does that for me, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, of late, J.C. Ryle has been doing that for me. I've been reading through his collected works. Uh, he just he refreshes my soul. Find living people. Find Barnabas's sons of encouragement. I love what Paul says to Philemon. He says to Philemon, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Who is it that refreshes you? And whoever that is, you latch on to them like Velcro and don't let them go. And you make them a friend. And you keep pursuing them. You've got to find Philemon's that refresh your ministry. That's discouragement. Third, the barrier to continuing ministry persevering is conflict. This is arguably one of the biggest surprises to young pastors. It was a huge surprise to me. I knew that there would be conflict in the ministry. I didn't know there would be as much as I ran into and have run into in ministry. Um, and it can take an incredible toll. Uh, people in the congregation may complain about your preaching or leading or decision making or lack thereof. They may object as I had... A number of families in one call that I went to that objected to the first place that we rented, that it was too far away from the church, and had an insurrection on my hands in the first week of being there because we had rented somewhere too far away from the church. Uh, Jonathan Edwards' congregation complained about him because he had two powdered wigs. Imagine uh, what luxuries. Uh, you know, we heard about John Calvin uh, yesterday. You know, John Calvin saying he'd rather die a thousand deaths than go back to Geneva. And, and when he said that, he was serious. I mean, it was awful. People literally named their dogs Calvin so that they could kick him and yell at him. Literally. People in the congregation would yell things out while he was preaching to interrupt his preaching. So much so that finally the city council outlawed it. And so Calvin reports that when that happened, then people started making loud, rude, bodily noises while he was certain preaching. It's just conflict. The conflict that you're mediating, there's going to be conflict that's aimed at you. Um, there are often going to be complaints. I was with a pastor recently uh, who was telling me that uh, they have a morning evening service, and the evening service he forgot his suit coat at home. And so he told the congregation before he began to preach that night, they forgot his suit coat. And uh, he said, yet after the service, he had six different families lined up to complain to him that he had just preached without a suit coat. I, I don't know, some are just silly. Uh, some are just goofy. Some are hurtful. But some are helpful. <clears throat> Encouragements. Don't be devastated by people. You find that a great deal of conflict in the church will not be a result of your own personal sin. Uh, to survive, a pastor must not carry every burden and every conflict. I love what David Pallison says. He says, it's like 
When you're ministering to people, if you stand close enough to the puddle, you're going to get splashed. So you know what? If you're ministering to somebody that's angry, eventually that anger is going to be turned at you. If you're ministering to somebody that is eaten up with bitterness, most likely eventually that bitterness is going to be aimed at you. And it's just part of ministry. While we must remain humble and willingly listen to the concerns of the people we serve, because never is an individual in more jeopardy than when he or she is caught in the self-constraining chains of self-righteousness, though we must search ourselves, it's not necessary to entertain every complaint. Some complaints are just silly and just ridiculous. And they're not worth the sleepless nights. They're not worth the hours of introspection. They're not worth the beating yourselves up with. You just need to frankly let them go. And sometimes that means letting people go. Number two, you see uh, conflict, see it as an opportunity. Uh, Went through some major conflict at uh, one of the churches that I served at. It was... uh, very painful for my wife and I, and what we would pray together every night is, Lord, help us to fall more in love with your people, not less in love with your people. And conflict is truly an opportunity to fall more in love with God's people. It's also an opportunity to fall more in love with Christ. You realize everything that he has endured for us. And all that, as we heard from Isaiah 53 just an hour ago, all that he endured and all that shame and all that ridicule and all that slander. And as we go through this conflict, we're being shaped and conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And it should give us more love for his people that he died for. See it as an opportunity. Develop a thick skin, but always maintain a tender heart. Stay humble, stay loving, cherish the people of God and rejoice. And you get to serve them. Fourth barrier to uh, persevering in the ministry is the cares of the world. Think of Demas as the ready example that is given to us in the scriptures. Uh, you think about Demas, and, and Demas, you know, is so in the inner circle of the Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, right? He's going around with him, ministering with him. He's listed there with Luke, right? He's in the inner circle. Twice Paul mentions him as part of that inner circle. And then we get to 2 Timothy, and Paul says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. With all the benefits of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And yet for love of the world, he deserted him. Business, family, money, position, prestige, and ease can be all like siren songs that just keep calling out to us. And they call in and then they devour. So with a pastor not too long ago, a man in the ministry that was asking me about, uh, he was trying to flip houses. He had already bought two or three houses and was trying to flip them and wanted to know whether he, he was going to buy a fourth house to, to flip and earn money. And he was seeking advice about whether he should do it. And I said, brother, you just can't do it. Uh, you're getting caught up in the things of the world. And these are things that are going to tie you down and that occupy your thoughts and occupy your time and your energy and uh, take care of the world that all of a sudden you realize, looking back, that you've been eaten up with pursuing wealth instead of pursuing Christ. You know, wealth can consume. Uh, desire can consume. 
you name it, can consume or Christ can consume. And we want Christ to consume us. So one, maintain accountability. Recognize where you are most easily seduced. Pray with your wife regularly about it. And let your fellow elders know about it. There's different areas that each of you men struggle with and that I struggle with. And those that are serving with us should know that. Uh, I think it is incredibly wise, especially if you're a senior pastor or solo pastor somewhere, that you have a group of elders that oversee you. I mean, that you get together with regularly and they check up on your wife, they check up on your parenting, you show them your finances and how you're spending your money. They check up on you. Men that love you and care for you. Don't think ministry insulates you. Demas is a ready warning for us. Second encouragement, seek contentment. Contentment is a rare jewel that once found and treasured, it fills the soul with delight. Whereas discontentment is a thief because it leads us to not enjoy what we already possess. We need to seek contentment. Not just preach it, just talk about it, but actually live it. I think about discontentment, I think, yeah. Maybe this isn't true, but I can't think of an example where it's not. But discontentment is always rooted in pride, as far as I can tell. I deserve something, or I need something. And contentment is always rooted in humility. And we're to be men of humility. Whether that is the size of your ministry, whether that is the fruitfulness of your ministry, whether that is your marriage, whether that is where your children are at, whether that is the elders that you are serving alongside, or the people that you are caring for. We're to be content. What does uh, the writer of Hebrews say? He says uh, uh, about those that are in authority over you, he says, let them do this without complaint. For what benefit is that to you? Right? If they're complaining. Be content. Fifth uh, barrier, I think, to persevering in the ministry is loneliness. Titus 3.12, Paul writes, When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. He's sending off two of his companions saying, Look, I'm going to spend the winter here, and I need you to come. He made his need known. Uh, he has no problem whatsoever letting Titus know that he needs them. Why? Because the pastorate, though it is one of the most people-intensive Vocations out there is also one of the most isolating vocations one can have. Because everyone feels like they know you. And yet, nobody could quite possibly know you. Not only the people in the church, but some of the communities you guys live in, everybody in the community feels like they know you. Because you're the pastor down in the home. And yet, nobody really knows you. Loneliness can be quite a burden. Encouragements. Number one, remember you're a sheep. Pastors can fall into the temptation of thinking that they no longer need others to minister to them. Friends, you need people to minister to you. Uh, you desperately need them. So number two, find a friend. Be willing to allow others to minister to you, not just people that are from afar. Uh, there may be different preachers that you listen to that encourage and stoke your soul or people you read, but you need a friend that draws near, someone that you see face to face. One of the reasons this is so important. Um, and uh, this has always been a highlight. I think uh, I've been coming for uh, 12 years.
years now, 11 years. Um, this is always one of the highlights of my year. Because some of my best friends in the world are here. Uh, met him here. Talk with him over the phone when we're apart. See him at General Assembly. Uh, this is incredibly important. Uh, my wife knows that this week is important, so she frees me up to come. So I can get together with my friends in the ministry and we can talk through things. Uh, get into each other's lives. But even that, I don't think is enough. I think you need somebody where you're at building. And I think that is incredibly important. Uh, whenever I've taken a new call somewhere, whatever place I've moved to, I've always called pastors in the area. In those first, that first two months, I set up lunch appointment after lunch appointment with different pastors in the area so that I can find somebody that I can interview. And someone that I think, you know what, I can develop a friendship here and someone I can trust. Uh, did that East Lansing move there uh, uh, someone said there's a pastor across town your age you should get to know him uh, called up uh, Kevin who I served with and we went out to lunch did it all and started getting together every two weeks just for accountability and encouragement and talking through theological things together um, I don't, some of the things that I went through and church planning there uh, I don't know if I could have done it without a friend that I could rely upon some of you will find that in your church. Uh, that's probably the easiest. You know, an elder that knows things that are going on, uh, that you can talk with, uh, pray with. You don't have to explain everything to because he's living and breathing it like you will. Um, maybe a staff member. But I also uh, would, would issue a little warning about that as well. Uh, is that your greatest ally in the church in one moment down the road can be the person that is most adamantly opposed to you. And all of those things you share can be ready fodder for the conflict that you're in. And uh, I think that means that I mean, you keep everybody at arm's length in the church, but I think that means that you got to be wise about who you're confiding in and who you're sharing stuff with. But regardless, you need to find somebody. Find somebody that will press in your life, that will ask the hard questions. And when you can do that face to face with. The last, uh, we open it up here, is moral failure. Robert Murray McShane, that famous 19th century Scottish Presbyterian pastor, said, The greatest need of my people is my own personal holiness. And I think he's exactly right. Robert Murray McShane was not mean. anti-gospel when he said that. You only have to read his sermons uh, to realize he wasn't saying that. What he is saying is the same thing that Paul was saying to Timothy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your doctrine. That's all he was saying. Keep a close watch on yourself. The pastor continually seeks after Christ and grows in holiness. He pursues the most important thing for his own soul and also for those under his care. It's the most important thing you can do for your people. You know what's the most important thing you can do for your wife? It's the most important thing you can do for your kids. It's pursue holiness. Pursue Christ. About three, I guess it's probably, uh, I guess four years ago now, in a matter of about six months or a year, three people that I love, that I count as friends, men that I respected, all three pastors, have extreme moral failures. Two of them are no longer married, separated from their wives and their kids. One I used to meet here every year. 
uh, one sits in prison. And we'll be there for the next 12 years. And it just started with a brush of a hand, or it started with a look at a website. It's all of us. They weren't on guard. And that little thing just grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it took more. And all those men, now their ministries are beyond gone. Their reputations are ruined. Their families are devastated. Their lives are turned upside down. Just for a little want of care. To be men that pursue holiness. Because if it's not checked, it can be a tool in our adversary's hands for hardening, destruction, not only of our spiritual lives, but of the lives of the people under us. Our adversary is no idiot. He knows that if he makes us fall, there's a cascading effect that happens. And that there are people under us that begin to excuse themselves or become demoralized about the church or about Christ and walk away. And so, men, we are on the front battle line, which means that we have to care for ourselves diligently and regularly and continually and constantly examining ourselves and pursuing holiness. Is that the utmost importance? Two encouragements. Don't be so busy about kingdom work that you forget kingdom life. Oh, uh, can be so we can get so caught up in doing the things of Christ that we're not just living and breathing Christ. It is such a subtle temptation. Because we think we're sacrificing for the sake of the kingdom. Right? We're running off to meet that person or running off to do this, and so we don't spend our time with the Lord. We don't have family worship at home with our family because you know what? We need to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom and this is when the elders meeting is and this is what fits their schedule so we've got to get off to it. And before we know it, we're neglecting our own spiritual lives. Or I think the greatest temptation is Sunday morning corporate worship. So we're so busy thinking about everything being lined up and ready. Is the sound working? Did that person make an announcement right? You know what? Next week we need to think that song didn't work thinking about the preaching that we're doing or we're getting ready to do and we forget to be worshipers. We're trying to engage other people in worship and we're not worshiping. It's such a subtle temptation. All of a sudden men get dried out and they don't know why they're not delighting in Christ anymore but they're going to keep persevering through the ministry. But they haven't been pursuing Christ themselves. Second Never think that you're above it, above moral failure. Keep learning, keep growing, keep asking. Never think you've arrived. Never think you're above it, that it won't happen to you. We serve a holy God and we have a holy calling. And so we are to have holy lives. That is to mark us. If I can, uh, just in closing, I'd say... Be thankful, brothers. I, I, uh, there are a lot of trials that come with ministry, but it, it discourages me incredibly when I just hear men complain about ministry like it is some awful burden. Uh, good night. Who, who has a better call in their lives than we do? We get paid to read the scriptures, to preach, to pray, 
that minister to God's people. We get to do things that not only have a benefit in this life, but have a benefit for all of eternity. Day in and day out. We get the benefit of people inviting us into their lives and sharing their deepest things. We get the benefit of seeing all these things that the Lord is doing. Often people say, oh, you know, struggle with their wife or their children uh, and say, oh, the toll that the ministry takes upon them. Well, they go through some things, but man, they, they also see incredible benefits. Our children that were praying for these people every night in the church, and then they get the reports of all these things that have happened. And you and I get that a hundred times. What they do. We have an incredible privilege. It's also an incredible responsibility, but it's an incredible privilege. I hope you're thankful for it. I hope you rejoice in the ministries. Alright. That's my speech. Let's do uh, questions. We'll help each other out. Time we go. 3.30. He went over. So let's, let's do uh, 10 minutes. Can we do 10 minutes? Okay. What kind of questions you guys have that we can, uh, we can help each other think through? Yeah, Kevin. Um, if you're an assistant or associate, and, uh, you're in a situation where your your friend mm-hmm. is the, the chief of staff or senior pastor. Friend, what advice would you give for those who feel that connection with the senior pastor? Do you feel like oh, this is a real, genuine connection, a real friend? How do you guard that, maintain that in a healthy way? And then on the opposite side, those who may take a call somewhere and they thought it might be a good connection with the senior pastor. Yeah. You still put a call to that church. Yeah. But there's there's not the friendship there as a, as a staff member. No, that's good. It's really good. How many of you guys are assistant or associate pastors? Yeah. Um, I've served as, uh, so you guys know my history. My first call was as an assistant pastor in North Carolina. And it's a little bit of uh, Interesting situation. The senior pastor and the associate pastor that were there, they didn't see eye to eye. And so uh, I was middleman for a while. The associate pastor went off to seminary, so it was a senior pastor and myself. And then when the associate pastor came back, um, the senior pastor left. And so then it was the associate pastor and myself. So served in that function, then was a church planner for five years. Um, and was on staff at the mother church as an assistant pastor while I was doing a church plant as a solo pastor. And then I've uh, been at URC for uh, the past five years as an associate pastor. So I've done the assistant associate thing. Uh, and say, so, you know, first and foremost, I think it's all important for associate assistant pastor is that he respects the man that he serves with. So to take the second half of your question, it may be that he's not a friend. That's all right. Um, it's all right if you guys aren't sharing everything with each other or uh, walking through things together. But he has to be a man that you respect. Um, a man that you're willing to die in front of stuff for. Uh, a man that you're willing to take bullets for. I think that's a lot of an associate assistant's job, is to make sure that the pulpit ministry of that senior pastor is not interrupted. And so he's willing to be the middleman in things and take the point on things. Uh, and 
think it's very hard for a man to do that if he doesn't respect that senior pastor. So uh, I don't know that you need to be friends. Uh, I think it's helpful. Uh, I think part of that is beginning to show that you're trustworthy and that you're loyal. Uh, you know, senior pastors uh, take quite a risk when they bring on an assistant or associate pastor. Because an associate or assistant pastor can be the greatest asset, I think, to the local church, or can be its greatest hindrance. And that senior pastor knows that when he's bringing them in. Either this man can divide the church, or he can be a great asset and just help my pulpit ministry and my leading flourish. And, uh, so I want to show, if I'm going as an assistant or associate pastor, I want to show that I am, I am loyal to the senior pastor. I'm a bull. When he tells me something, it is locked up. Uh, when he asks me to do something, I do. Uh, that no one in the church can find any fissure between us. Because they'll look for it. That's what's, that's what's killer about being an associate or assistant pastor. You will get people that walk up to you and they're looking for a break between you and the senior pastor. So they'll say things. So they'll say things like, yeah, I'm glad the senior pastor's back, but man, we really love when you preach. Right? <laughs> they're opening a door. So you got to kill it right away. What? Oh, I, I'm just glad he's back in the cold. I'd love to sit and listen to his preaching. The Lord has blessed us with a good senior pastor. You kill it. Because if you at all tickle that, they'll keep coming back. Your senior pastor will pick up on these things after a while. So I think it opens the door to friendship. Uh, you show that you're loyal and you're trustworthy. On the other side, maintaining it, once you have it, uh, it's, it's keeping that mantra going, that, uh, the truth of it, that you're the senior pastor's man. Everybody knows you're the senior pastor's man. That's what it is. I serve Christ and I serve Him as I'm serving this congregation. Uh, so uh, I, think, I think that is incredibly important. Uh, at session meetings, um, I don't. I would never disagree with the senior pastor at a session meeting. Uh, now, when we're behind closed doors because we're friends, we can talk through things. I don't think that's the way we should go. I don't think that's how that should have been handled. And I think that's part of being a friend. Uh, is that you're checking in, you're praying for him, you let him know that you're praying for him, you help him think through things. Uh, uh, but you're never publicly disagreeing with them or showing disagreement with them. Yeah. Nathan? How long does it cost? Do you think that if you're taking bullets or, or the question comes, I prefer your preaching better than ever, you shut it down like you said, do you think, do you, do you let the senior pastor know that, you, that so that they know there's someone out there thinking that way, or do you, do you no, because part of part of my job as a sister associate pastor is to encourage that senior pastor. So you know what? I don't want him knowing that someone's thinking that in the church. I want him thinking everybody in the church thinks he's the best preacher there is. Because I want to encourage his pulpit ministry. And uh, I want to be an encouragement to him. So no, I, I would never offer that. What if it's not preaching? What if it's, I don't know, somebody's there. Some aspect where it would be helpful. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't think comparing ourselves ever to that senior pastor to him is helpful. 
I think it, there there could be things that someone says maybe like um, I'm trying to think of an example. Maybe someone says, "Man, I just don't feel like uh, the senior pastor communicates what's going on to us as far as vision." Well, I may go to him and say, "You know, I wonder if we should think through how to communicate the vision of the church more to the congregation." Um, I'm not going to tell him that I have people coming to me and complaining that he's not making the vision known. Yeah. So it's never, the, it's never the obvious ways people are complaining about you. Know, I just, I mean, that's, it's just not helpful. Um, I think all it does is discourage me. I think there are ways to encourage him along lines um, that maybe people are saying things without, uh, without putting yourself in their... Because by doing that, you, you're, you're not only uh, discouraging him in the ministry that he's doing and, the, and what people are saying, but you're also showing that you're a threat. Because why? Because why are people coming to you and telling you these things? I, I always, I'm always concerned when an elder, when it's the same elder over and over and over that hears all the complaints of the church. Because I can tell you what's happening. He gives a listening ear. That's what he's doing. So there are a lot of people that will just listen to things, and by doing that, they encourage more of those things. Instead of saying, you know what, that, thank you for bringing that to our attention, and then moving on. Oh, I know. You know that, that is, that's really not good, is it? That's, that's horrible. That, it, that's just giving a listening ear that encourages kind of complaining and gossiping, these kind of things. So I'm going to make sure I'm not doing that. As a church planner, when you don't really have a session, um, how much do you share with your wife? That's great, Jason. So th- these are these are my rules. I, I messed up early. Uh, and I messed up pretty severely. We were... Uh, I shouldn't say that. I'm being recorded. Um, no, that's all right. It's fine. I just think there, there are some things, these are my rules of thumb, is this. I don't share anything with her that's one going to disrupt her worship. Okay? Mm-hmm. So if there's something that's going to disrupt her worship because she knows this is going on in the church or she knows that this person's angry or whatever, then I, she doesn't find out. The second is... I don't share anything with her that will disrupt her view of somebody else in the church. So if she's going to start looking at that person out of the corner of her eye, saying, oh man, I can't believe that person did that, or that person struggles with that, etc. She doesn't need to know. And that's really a matter of wisdom. You men know your wives, and you've got to know your wives, uh, and what they can handle in those two regards. But then this is the third one that I think took me way too long to figure out. Is I should only share with her what she actually needs to know. So I think a lot of times we share things because we want our wife to be able to minister to us. We want somebody to share it with. Um, and, uh, And I think you can do that in circumspect ways that don't tell things about people and so disrupt her view of people and disrupt her view of worship or the church um, and she can do that 
But there are certain things that she just doesn't need to know. She's not called to carry these burdens. I am. And I don't want to see my wife weighed down with a lot of these burdens that are frankly my responsibility to carry. And she's called to be my helpmate, not to be the pastor of that church. And so those are the three rules of thumb that I use. And when I train elders as well, I always share those three things. That, man, I'm never going to tell you you can't tell your wife this or that. You have to make those decisions. Unless we go into some kind of executive session where we say that this is just something that cannot ever be shared with him. But I so said, I'm not going to tell you what you can say or can't say to your wife. But you got to run it through these three grids and be wise. Yeah. Do you have any wisdom in how to discern if you feel a burden to preach and to be um, a senior pastor when the right time to transition or to look to transition yeah. is? It's good, Scott. Uh, I think there's a couple things. I remember wrestling with that when I was uh, at my first call. And I called my mentor at the time, uh, Paul Settle, uh, was my mentor. Um, and I remember calling Paul Settle and asking that question. And this, this was his response, and, and I think it's exactly right, because I've always told it to you. He says, it's often, he said, whenever I felt like I was going somewhere new, he said, the Lord would just give this unsettledness. A holy unsettledness. And I think that's right. Um, we can become unsettled because of sin. So we've got to explore that. We can become unsettled, especially because of discontentment as a sin. But it's often that the Lord just makes us unsettled because he's getting ready to move us. Uh, and that, that really is a matter of wisdom. I've always, you know, a lot of men don't do this. Uh, I have always offered it to my session before I've gone somewhere said, look, man, I'm a man, man under authority. Uh, I've been offered this call. This is where my wife and I are at. Uh, this is, these are the reasons that we think we should go. Um, I leave it to you men to uh, tell me, give me counsel on whether you think I should take this or not. Uh, remember the first church I served that did that when I was getting ready to go to the church plant? And to a man, they went around the room and they said, Jason, this is not time for you to leave this church. Can't have you go at this point. So I called that church plant and I said, I can't come. Uh, and then I felt physically sick for three days. And my wife, who is not an emotional person, was crying on stuff. She said, you made a mistake. We were supposed to go. And so I went out to lunch with each of those elders and over the next week and went out to lunch with them and then it was interesting, to a man, they all said, no, we were being selfish, and you're right, you need to go. Mm-hmm. So I called that church plant back up and said, you know what, I'm on my way. And, uh, and so we left and went to East Lansing. But I, I see myself as a man under authority, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer to them. Yeah. You mentioned tiredness as a lot of your issues, and you mentioned prayers and all the ways you kind of Um, I, you know, I, I was talking about this with a pastor the other day. Is um, I think you got to figure yourself out, and that takes some time. Uh, 
Kevin, like who I, I labor with, he will take all of his vacation and study leave during the summer. So it's back to back to back. So he'll he'll be gone for, I don't know, eight weeks during the summer, six weeks during the summer. That works for him. That that would not work for me. Because if I have to go the whole year and then I'm getting six weeks, that, that that's too long. I gotta have I gotta have week breaks here and there. So I get four weeks of vacation, get a couple weeks of study leave, and so I space them out uh, to where I know this is going to be this is going to be a place where I'm about burnout after this many weeks of just going headlong with family and with ministry. Um, so I think part of this figuring yourself out. I, I think part of that as well is figuring yourself out is things that stir you. Uh, like I said, I'm a Jonathan Edwards guy. I believe that our affections are to be moved. Uh, and you've got to find things that stir you and refresh you. Uh, so whether that's people that you read that do that, um, or maybe there's certain spiritual disciplines that do that for you. Um, some men, it's uh, fasting or meditating or memorizing. You know, I was talking to a brother here yesterday, and there's a certain, uh, said Sinclair Ferguson does that, but he listens to everything Sinclair Ferguson does. So each week he, he listens to a Sinclair Ferguson sermon because that somehow refreshes his soul. Um, I do the same thing with Sinclair. Uh, you gotta, you got to know yourself, figure yourself out, and find things that do that. Um, being out in nature does that for me too, interestingly. I, find, I can spend a whole day reading... And I'm not as refreshed as if I go out and I just spend a day walking the woods. Because I think upon the things of God, I'm out in nature, things slow down for me. Uh, it just refreshes me. That's a little boy scout out there. I don't know. Okay, learn yourself. All right, anything else? Mark? Yeah, tell us about your experience with politics in the church, both with peers and with congregants. Yeah. Uh, a lot of it. Uh, you know, I'll tell you this lesson. is uh, I was telling my wife this the other day. We were talking about something. And I was saying, you know what? I just have no desire to walk into that. And I said, you know what? Three years ago, I would I think when, when I was first starting out in ministry, any time there was conflict or there were disagreements in the church, I jumped right into it. Probably because I had a savior complex and thought, I can get this figured out. Probably also because I had a control complex and I wanted to make sure it was figured out the way I wanted it to be figured out. Um, and I find now I have less of a desire to do that. Part of that is probably because conflict's just not fun politics or conflict. Um, but I think it's also it's wisdom. It's it's knowing, you know what, I don't I don't need to get in the middle of all these things. Um, I need to be very selective and careful as a pastor about what political things I'm getting involved in the church, which ones I'm engaging, which ones I'm even willing to give a listening ear to, uh, what conflicts I'm willing to enter into, even as a mediator. Because it does affect your pastorate. 
So I don't want to be shy from those things. I want to be courageous and be willing to jump in at any time that I'm supposed to jump in. But I also don't need to jump into everything. Because it, it does affect your preaching, people listening to it. It does affect how they look at you as a pastor. It does affect just your emotional energy. It affects your view of people. Um, and sometimes those things are just going to always exist, and sometimes those things just have to be worked out between those people and the Lord. And there's a benefit to letting them figure it out. And so I want to be courageous, but I want to be wise in doing so. I'm not jumping there. Okay. Alright. We did it. Good being with you, brothers. Jason, you close us in prayer? Sure. Okay. Heavenly Father, we look to you this afternoon. Thank you for this opportunity to think about the challenges of ministry. Lord God, would you be merciful to us and further equip us to shepherd your sheep. And I pray, oh God, that, that you would bless Jason and his ministry and bless each of these brothers as they go back to their churches and those of us that are not yet quite there as we think forward and look to uh, where you would have us serve. Give us wisdom and grace to love your people well and to love your word and to love Christ supremely. We pray these things in Christ's name.